0: So back to the book of Acts this morning. As we said last week and the week before that, it really is just in essence is a continuation of the gospel. You know, The gospel is all about Jesus preparing these disciples to go forth into the world and uh, carry the message of the gospel Uh, to the remotest parts of the earth, and we know that the book of Acts has everything to do with that actually taking place. Well, Christ is ascended back into heaven. Disciples uh, now return back to Jerusalem to the upper room where they've, I guess it's become kind of their security blanket in a sense. It seems to be the place they keep going back to and we're assuming all along that it's the same upper room that they celebrated the Lord's Supper with Jesus not very many days before that. But let's read this morning. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount uh, called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were saying, Peter and James, and, uh, John and James and Andrew, Philip uh, and, and, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Uh, The company of persons was in, in, in about 120 people. I want you to notice that. It's not just the disciples. There's over 100 people that are also gathered with them. And this seems to be something that's very common at this period. And said, "Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand, to the mouth, uh, through the mouth or by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with a reward uh, of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out." And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, uh, al is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us, During all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forth two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered among the eleven apostles. As we said before, the upper room seems to be the place that these guys continually Return to. And we understand that there's a sense in which they are in a waiting period. They're waiting for Jesus to send forth the Holy Spirit as he promised them that he would in short time. So there's a sense in which they are waiting at this point. But I want you to notice here that they don't wait and do nothing. They're not sitting around in the upper room, you know, chit-chatting and playing checkers and, you know, doing this, that, and the other, just trying to kill the time and all of that. They, at this point, what we're told here is that what they were doing was they were devoting themselves to prayer. They didn't see this as an empty time, a time of not doing. They saw that, there was, that this was, gave them a real opportunity to concentrate a great deal on prayer. They don't see this as idle time of doing nothing. And we understand that as you look through the Gospels, that you see Jesus practicing the same sort of thing. In other words, they're only doing now what Jesus has shown them to do in the past. I mean, after feeding the 5,000, we're told that Jesus went up on the mountain for what reason but to pray. The very night before he chose the 12 disciples, we're told he went up on the mountain to pray. All night he continued in prayer. And just remember, immediately before his rest, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed those three times, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Prayer is so important to the life of a Christian. There's a sense in which we could never devote enough time to prayer. And I hope that this is a very big part of your own life. Please don't be those people that go through a whole day without praying at all, it needs to be part of our DNA a lot of reasons and, and you know very often we think of prayer as just that time that we're asking god for things but we need to understand something that there is a preparation that takes place during our prayer times just as it did for jesus just as it's doing here for these apostles It's a time of being prepared to do what to go forth to do the ministry Sometimes I think people grossly misunderstand prayer. A lot of people, I believe, think the principal, primary reason for prayer is to ask God for things. But prayer is so vital. Not only vital to you and I as individual Christians, but vital to the overall ministry of the church of Jesus Christ in this world. And prayer is something that we can all very easily do. Let me just read you a few quotes by very well-known Christians of the past. Prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed. That's EM bounds. The value of persistent prayer is not that he will hear us, but that we will finally hear him. Martin Luther once said, Pray like it depends on God when you are done go work like it depends on you he also said this no one can believe how powerful prayer is and what it can affect except those who have learned by experience whenever I have prayed in earnest I have been heard and have obtained more than I pray for God sometimes delays but he always comes. Luther also said this, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer is asking God to align you with his will rather than asking him to be aligned with yours. Guess who said that? Me. (laughs) Me. See, I do think very often we misunderstand what prayer is. You know, we, we think prayer is just our time of, you know, with our wish list and, and this, that, and the other, and asking, 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 and asking. But there's an aspect of prayer that we're missing all over the place if that's what our perspective is. And that is this, is, is our passion, our prayer should always be underlined with the idea that the will of God would be done, not our will, not what we desire, but what he knows to be best. In every situation, in every circumstance. Ministry without prayer is doomed to fail. And lots of it. One of the things that becomes clear in all of this is is we're not talking about just the, the apostles being gathered there. There are other people there with them. And it appears to be maybe a hundred plus people. It's a true representation of the church gathered together now. Is it still in the upper room? I don't know. It must have been a big upper room if you had that many people crammed into it. I don't know. But I think one of the lessons that the apostles had very clearly learned from Jesus through the years is that... Prayer is absolutely essential to the success of any and every particular ministry. If they had any hope at all of of actually doing what Jesus had called them to do in that great commission to go and make disciples to all nations, they knew that it took a whole lot of prayer to make it a reality. They're waiting. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. But they're not wasting that time. They're doing something that's absolutely essential to their ministry. We're sitting here this morning in this sanctuary in in Springs. Presbyterian Church has been around for 27, 28 years at this point, and we've, we, we at one time we were a considerably bigger church than we are now. Uh, we shrunk a bit over the years. If you've been here long enough, you've seen that, uh, and that sort of thing. You know, and today, very often, it's always been the case historically, you know, the churches that are considered to be successful churches are the bigger churches. But let me just tell you this i really believe this truly is that sometimes god purposely keeps churches smaller because when great things and good things and whatever come out of it what conclusion must people come to that it's not a people thing it is actually a god thing who gets the glory who gets the credit he gets the glory he gets the credit But years of prayer, literally years, people prayed for this church years before it ever became a reality. There are a few people here this morning that had something to do that. Most of us, on the other hand, did not. We benefited from their prayers. Just as we pray, there should be other people that benefit from ours. Peter takes the initiative. He figures that they need to replace Judas. Jesus, there were 12 of us. us. Judas did his dirty deed and he's gone. That means there's an empty space. So we need to take the initiative to fill it back up to 12. He quotes scripture to prove his point. From Psalm sixty nine, verses twenty four through twenty eight. Pour out your anger upon them and let your burning anger overcome them. May there can't be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecuted him whom you have struck down, speaking about Jesus, and they recount the pain of Those you have wounded, add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. You wonder how that has much to do with what's going on here. But from Psalm 109 verse 8. He quotes this, may his days be few, may another take his office. So it's not time once again to bring the 11 back up to 12. We know that being an apostle was a very special calling, not just for anybody and everybody, that in essence the apostles were men who were handpicked by God himself. He had to be a man who had experienced everything related to Jesus that the apostles had, and this is one of the things that I've kind of woken up to in more recent months. And that is this: is this entourage of Jesus and the twelve disciples going all around the land is not really an accurate picture of what took place. But there were lots of other people that were with them too. Everywhere they went. In other words, very often we have this idea of Jesus, you know, moving around the promised land with those 12 other guys, and that's it. And that just is not an accurate picture of what the Bible shows us. There were lots more. But Peter sees a necessity in filling the open slot. It had to be someone who had been, it had to be a man who had been with them, experienced all the same things that the apostles had in regard to Jesus through these years of his ministry. One of the big things we should get from the book of Acts is like we've already said a number of times, and that is this, is the Gospels about Jesus' ministry and in essence laying a lot of groundwork and whatever. And in the time of the apostles, the church exploding into the Mediterranean world as these guys went out. And they preached and they prayed and they witnessed and they evangelized. We don't know much about the ministry of most of them from Scripture itself, but we do know something about the ministry of all of them to some degree from historical records. Outside the Bible, they were faithful to the man and doing exactly what Christ had called them to do. They went forth with this message, this most important message, a message they knew they could not keep to themselves. Can you imagine being Matthias on that day? Being appointed now to be among the twelve? I would imagine he was a very humble sort of person. But what a privilege granted to a faithful brother in Christ by his fellow brothers in Christ and by the Holy Spirit, incidentally, to become one of the apostles. Now, there are, there are times when you'll see people in what we would classify maybe as el- evangelical churches or whatever claiming the title of apostle. There are people standing in pulpits this morning that would tell you that they've been called by God to be an apostle. We don't believe they have the basis from scripture of doing such a thing. Our understanding from Scripture is that the apostles were guys that were directly involved immediately in the ministry of Jesus to be the first wave going out into the world. We do not believe that anyone for almost 2,000 years now, since the last of these guys died off, has ever been granted the title of apostle by Jesus Christ. You understand that all, people, all Christians don't necessarily believe that. That some people believe others. For instance, have you ever heard of apostolic succession? You ever heard of that theological phrase? It's Roman Catholic. There's a sense in which Roman Catholics believe that the Pope is actually an apostle. With all the rights and privileges and responsibilities and honors and etc. that the original apostles had. You may not know much about the history of the papacy uh, and there have been some very wonderful Christian brothers that have served as popes but unfortunately history attests to the fact that many of them were terribly wicked and evil men. Pope number nine. I'm not, I'm not sure what number he is, but... Pope Benedict, 1032 to 1048. He was noted to sell papal favors for great sums of money. He had the reputation of doing that. So if you wanted some special blessing, all you got to do is pay the Pope. He was also accused of adultery, homosexuality, and even bestiality. He had his superior murdered in order that he would be elected to the papacy. Uh, He also had a mistress, by the way. Pope Innocent III, 1198. He aided in the mass murders of over a million people. Pope John the Twenty-Third was noted to be a fornicator, adulterer. He practiced incest, sodomy, simony, theft, murder, and also buying and selling uh, ecclesiastical privileges. Now let me say this again, that some of the popes had been very godly, God-loving men and whatever. But I'm just telling you, that just is not true for all of them. Some of them have been scoundrels. But Roman Catholic doctrine basically goes on the assumption that the Pope is an apostle. We as Protestants understand that the office ended when the last of these that we're studying here in Scripture now died off. And we know from, not from Scripture, but we know from historical records that they all were very faithful in doing what Christ called them to do. And the vast majority of them gave their life, literally, for the ministry. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome around A.D. 64, about the same time that Paul was beheaded. Andrew was crucified, that was Peter's brother. James, the brother of John, was beheaded by Herod. That's the only one that's actually recorded in Scripture. Philip was hanged in Turkey in A.D. 80. Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel, he was flayed to death with knives in India. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. Thomas, also called Didymus, was killed with a spear in India. James, the son of Alphaeus, crucified in Lower Egypt. Thaddeus shot dead with arrows. Simon the Zealot, crucified. Judas Iscariot hanged himself. John, the son of Zebedee, the one who wrote the gospel we just studied, (laughs) is apparently the only one that died of old age. Matthias, who was chosen by the eleven now to replace Judas Iscariot, is said to have died a martyr's death also. Not one of them, not a single one of them recanted over their faith before they were murdered. None of them gave up the ghost. None of them said, you know what? I just pretend been pretending in all these years that Jesus, He's just a fellow and this, that and the other, and this, this whole thing about the gospel is just a lie from the pit of hell and, and whatever. None of them did that. All of them went to their death simply because they were true to their calling, simply because they were faithful in doing what Jesus had called them to do and empowered them to do. But it's not just the history of the apostles. We have the history of the church through the last 2,000 years to attest to the same thing over and over and over again. We've had countless brothers and sisters that have given their life for no other reason than than their belief and their faith in the gospel and in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and their Savior. There will be people in this world today, more than likely, who will die for the same reason. They cast lots. They came up with two guys. And they cast lots, (coughs) excuse me, to figure out who it would be to replace their fallen Conrad. Do you understand why? We don't exactly understand what casting lots was. You know, sometimes people liken it to throwing dice and stuff, and it's probably somewhat similar to that. <laughs> and, and whatever. And, you know, if you look at the Old Testament, there was something called the the, the Urim and the Thummim that they used to determine what God's will in particular situations. Uh, you know, happened to be way back in the Old Testament. Uh, but they, they cast lots to divide up the promised land, determine which tribe got which particular Piece of property, of real estate. They also cast lots between two goats on the Day of Atonement to determine which one of them got to be sacrificed and which one got to wander off into the wilderness. They just to understand why they did this. They did this because it's a way for them to determine what God's will is without any interjection on their part. So that when all is said and done, they would say this, that we did not choose Matthias. God himself is the Jesus is the one actually who chose Matthias for this particular position. We all know that later on, Paul, Saul, would become a disciple or an apostle. And we understand that there's a good bit of the book of Acts that is dedicated to the ministry of Paul, more than anybody else by a long shot. Some people have questions how could Paul actually? have been an apostle because we have no record. He certainly was not with Jesus through Jesus' whole ministry and this, that, and the other. He came into the picture later on and all of that. So how would it be that if there were certain qualifications for an apostle which Paul didn't meet, then how could it be possible for him to become an apostle? Now, I know many people that would deny the apostleship of Christ. Maybe there are a few that might do that, but but everyone accepts the the simple truth that Did God call the apostle Paul to be an apostle, right? But he was he didn't meet that criteria. He was not one of those who was with Jesus from the beginning, like like we just see here. the thing about it is is this is we know the rest of the story and we understand this that probably the ministry of Paul was far more far-reaching than the ministries of any of these other guys the truth of the matter is this is you and I are here this morning probably more as a benefit from the ministry of than the ministry of any of the other apostles. Because it was through Paul to the greatest degree that the gospel went forth to the Gentiles. And I w- there may be some people in here that have some Jewish blood in them. We, maybe most of us do if we get far enough back or, or, or whatever. But, the, but I would imagine the, everybody in this room considers themselves to be a Gentile. And what I would say to you is this, is that you and I have benefited a lot from the, from the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We recognize him as an apostle. We don't put him in a lesser degree. We don't say, well, you got Peter and you got John, you got the other guys, and they're the real apostles, and he's like a subclass of apostle or something like that. We don't do that. We see him maybe to even a greater degree fulfilling the responsibilities of the, uh, the office of apostle, if anything. But it was through Paul to the greatest degree that the gospel went out to the Gentiles. Some people think that maybe we're kind of in a dilemma here. There are certain things that apostles had to have, the requirements, and he didn't meet the requirements, so how in the world could he be an apostle? Probably most of you could care less. But reality is this, is the apostle Paul became an apostle. Why? Why, why, why? Because Jesus made him an apostle, and Jesus is his show, and he can do what he wants to with whoever he wants to, whenever he wants to, and he doesn't have to explain it to peons like you and I. Or me. I mean, no one in this room doubts the apostleship of Paul. But you need to understand that through history, people have, ha- have tried to discredit him from this, simply because he didn't meet those basic requirements to be an apostle that were laid down early on. You understand, it's, just an, it's an example of God using and choosing whoever he wants, whenever he wants, and doing with them whatever he wants without giving any explanation to anybody else. He doesn't owe anybody an explanation. He doesn't owe the church an explanation. It's his church. He sets the rules. He does his thing, and we're just part of it. What a privilege we've been given. Really, it was really enjoyable this morning to have our meeting and elect three men to office. Men that we need in office, by the way. I'm just thankful. I am thankful. Let me tell you, in churches the size of Springs... The common thing is for those churches to struggle to have officers. That we have been so blessed over the years with men that feel called by God to do this service who have been willing to step forward you know, there are a lot of churches where they have term limits. You can be a deacon for two years and then you have to rotate off, or you can be an elder for four years and then you have to rotate off, and this, that, and the other. We've never practiced this. Why? Because I don't see any ground for it in the Bible. We've always taken the approach here that, that when you become an officer, you will be an officer here until such time you choose not to be or the church chooses that we don't want you to be. We've got some guys that are well into their 80s now. And I've suggested a couple of times that maybe they want to take, might want to, you know, they can take emeritus status where they're they're still an officer. They lose their voting privileges, but they can come to all the meetings that they want to, but they don't have to come to meetings and things like that. But nobody wants to do that. They want to continue to serve. it's been a great privilege to work with these guys over the years. It's not that we always agree on everything. But I tell you this right now. Every single one of them has a very great heart for God. And they also have a very great heart for you. And guess what? They have a very great heart for Lori and I too. Don't doubt it for a minute. Every one of them wants the very best for you. they love you. And I would imagine if I talked to them, they would tell you one of the greatest privileges of their life is serving as an officer in this church. Because of the God that they serve. But also because of the congregation that they serve. It's a remarkable thing to be called into service like that. You need to understand every one of them that really is worthy of it questions their own abilities. They really do. But nonetheless, you you called them. Ultimately, because God called them. The work continues, the mission goes on. Our mission is little different than that of the Apostles. that Great Commission. We're engaged in it as a body, but we're also engaged in it individually. You may not realize it, but there are people watching you. (laughs) Boy, that really got some people's attention. (laughs) somebody's about to fall asleep, and then all of a sudden them eyeballs got real big. (laughs) You understand why it's so important for us to be strong witnesses for Christ in the world? Because when they look at you, the impression they have of you is the impression they have of Jesus. And that's a really uncomfortable place for all of us to be. I don't know about you, but it doesn't make me feel all that comfortable that people would look at me and, and have some idea that I look something like Jesus does. <laughs> but just as the apostles were represented as Christ, every one of us is a representative for Jesus. And what they see in you and what they hear coming out of your mouth and that sort of thing has everything to do with their impression of Him. Just like Jesus in the temple to Mary, I must be about my father's business.